You may be seated, and if you'll turn with me in the book of First Peter, if you're visiting with us, we are regularly work our way through books of the Bible, and we're finishing up First Peter today, First Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 6. Next week, we will begin a sermon series uh, and for the season of Advent. Advent is the season leading up to Christmas, a series a season of anticipation, and we are going to be looking at this, that if during Christmas that we celebrate this fact, Emmanuel, God with us, asking then the question, what is the heart of God towards us? And then riffing off of Psalm 34, that God is near to the brokenhearted, near to us in different areas. So we can look forward to that. If uh, you got our email this week, you know that there is um, an Advent devotional for you on the table over here, one per family, and then one for you to give away um, to someone. If we run out, we'll order some more this week and get some more for you next week. But grab one of those, one per family, um, and then one to give away to a family or neighbor who needs the hope of the gospel at all times, but particularly right now in the midst of a pandemic. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 6. This is God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you join with me as we ask the Lord Jesus to bless his word preached? Let's pray. All glory be to Christ our King. And now from your place of glory, preach your glorious gospel to us with power. Don't let us leave here unchanged by you. Change us, all of us. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Afflict us where we need to be afflicted. Confront us where we need to be confronted. But in all things, increase our repentance and increase our faith so that we would leave here singing even more fully. All glory be to Christ our King. And so we pray in your name, our Savior. Amen. I um, I sort of have a a working premise that has only been confirmed and I think increased for all of us um, as I've gotten older. And it's this, that most of us are just trying to make it through the day, clawing our way through to the end of the day. Right? And at, at, in the best of times, the level of suffering and struggle in all of our lives is deep and profound. I know we like to hide it. Um, we like to dismiss it. We kind of don't like to admit it. But for, to be honest, the level of suffering in most of our lives is deep and profound. The anxiety is barely manageable. The depression is a constant fog 
that takes away our dreams, and that's often just the baseline. And then you add to that our current status. We're in a pandemic. That in the best of times, that's the case. And now we are here. And most of the time, the question that plagues us when we get quiet is this. Am I going to make it? In turmoil, we look for a story. A story that will give us hope. Because we've got to organize that experience around something. We've got to latch into something and grab hold of it. And hopefully it will grab hold of us to ground us and give us hope. And what happens in suffering is that we lose our story. And when that happens for those who are in Christ, when we lose our story, we actually suffer twice. We're not only suffering, but we're suffering under the fact that we've become unanchored and we're drifting around full of doubts and fears. And when we do that, we reach out for lesser stories. And those lesser stories can never hold the weight of our suffering, which only makes us more anxious and fearful and eventually desperate. For instance, everything is politics right now. Everything is politicized. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Like, sometimes I'm afraid that if someone is going to camp me politically based on what they've seen me eat for lunch, everything is politicized. And politics are important, very important, just not ultimately important. Now, if you organize your hope around the story that whatever happens politically is either going to devastate you or comfort you, then you've placed ultimate hope on it. I put my hopes and my dreams on that, and it can't bear that kind of weight. Neither can the addict's story that pleasure is going to bring joy. Can't bear that kind of weight. Neither can the career story that if I advance in my career, then I will find security or applause. It can't bear that kind of weight. And do you see what Peter has been doing in his letter throughout is he is grounding us in a better story that can bear the weight of giving ultimate hope. A story about what God is doing in the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You'll remember how he starts his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And it, it seems a little dismissive when Peter, at the beginning of his letter, and here now, at the end of his letter, calls our trials just a little thing, if just for a little while. But you see what he's doing is he's interpreting whatever we're going through, not dismissing it or diminishing it, but elevating the hope that is in Christ. It's just for a little while because that's not your ultimate experience because if you're united to jesus what goes for jesus goes for you so that here now at the end of his letter he can say this 
And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But again, here's the question that arises in the middle of our trial. Sometimes it, it, it's what wakes us up at night. It always comes rushing in when we're most quiet. Perhaps that's why we like to busy ourselves with our technology or with our lesser stories. And it's this. How can I know that everything is going to be okay? How can I know that I am going to make it through this? Whatever this is that we're currently going through in your life. And you see what Peter does here at the end of his letter is he breaks into doxology. He breaks out into praise, singing God's praises. And he's saying to us, oh, let me give you a reason that you're going to make it through. Let me give you a reason that everything is going to be okay. Your hope is on the back of the God of all Three reasons that Peter gives us that we will make it to the end here in chapter 5, starting with verse 10. Three reasons. One, because the God of all grace has called you. Secondly, he has called you into Christ's eternal glory. And then thirdly, he is going to carry you to the end. The God of of all grace has called you. He has called you into Christ's eternal glory, and you're going to make it because he is going to carry you all the way through to the end. So first, because the God of all grace has called you. The God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, when we hear call, we think, a call to action. He's calling us to do something. Right? I'm calling you to do great things for God. Then you think to yourself immediately afterwards, you hear this rousing call to action, and then you're like, oh, I'm on board, I'm going to go do this. And then about 15 minutes pass by, and you're like, yeah, I'm probably not. And then despair sets in. I'm not doing great things for God. He's called me to great things. I'm not doing great things. Am I even a Christian? But you see in the Bible, that language of call is not primarily a call to action, but rather the saving action of God calling you to himself. It's not a call to do, it's a call into Christ. And thus, it's God's effectual call. This is what we read in our shorter catechism reading to this morning. What is God's effectual call? It's God's ability to change things. It's his call that has power. It affects things. And so effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, where the spirit works on our hearts both to persuade and then enable us to believe the gospel as Jesus is offered to us in it. It's the work of bringing someone to faith in Jesus, and it's all God's work from beginning to end. God doesn't just make a way into heaven, crucify Jesus on the cross, open the door, and then say to us, the rest is up to you. 
from beginning to end. He makes the way and then enables us by calling us with the power of the Spirit into Christ. So that beginning to end, from the moment we put our faith in Jesus to the moment that we enter into His new heavens and new earth, it is by God's grace. Every single person who is a Christian has had this experience. There once was a time when you thought the gospel was the craziest thing that you've ever heard. Maybe you just were like indifferent to it. But then... Something becomes alive in you. What once you were indifferent to all of a sudden becomes alive. And maybe some of you are experiencing that now or you're experiencing it recently. Things like this. Or I never really heard the gospel before. And it's not that the gospel became alive. It's that you, by God's grace, became alive to the gospel. When God called you, you began to hear His voice. And there is not a single person who is a follower of Jesus because of your ingenuity or your effort. It is all because of God's grace reaching out to us when we were sinners in rebellion against Him. And that's Peter's point. You didn't get in by your own effort and you aren't going to make it to the end by your own effort. There's only one economy in God's kingdom. It's an economy of grace towards helpless weak, destitute sinners, so that Paul can write this. I'm sure of this. It's Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. This becomes this golden chain of salvation that Paul kind of rehearses in Romans chapter 8. Those that God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified those he justified. He also glorified all God's work from beginning to end. And so Peter's saying to us, in the midst of your suffering, look back. Look back. Look back at how this story started. It started by God's grace in your life. The God of all grace called you. Now, do you think he's going to leave you to yourself now? And he's also called you into Christ's eternal glory. He he called you to or into his eternal glory in Christ. Again, this is a factual call. God making something to happen. But the call is into the glory of Jesus. Isn't so much this is on your shoulders, but I, the Lord, am making something happen. And what I've done is I've transferred you out of one kingdom that is full of darkness and brokenness and despair that leads to the end of judgment. And I've called you into a place of flourishing in Christ's glory. Again, this is not so much a call to glorify God, but a call that we've entered into, a reminder that we've entered by God's calling, entered into the glory of Jesus. And when he says eternal glory, we have to think, we kind of adjust our expectations as we hear that, because oftentimes in the Bible, eternal is less about time and more about place. Or say it another way, it's less about quantity as it is about quality. It's more about 
the presence of God where God dwells in all of his fullness. He dwells in glory in eternity. It is the place of flourishing and rest. Wherever God is, his eternal glory is such that those who are in it enjoy rest and flourish because he is there. You see what Peter's saying is this isn't just a future reality. What he's saying is that when you come to faith in Jesus, you are brought into that eternal glory. That's part of the tension that the Christian feels. Right? I belong to Jesus, and yet I'm so still so full of brokenness and sin. But that brokenness and sin isn't what is most true about me. What is most true about me is I've entered into God's presence. And God in his glory dwells in me so that I have become a temple of the living God. And he doesn't just dwell there like ashamed to be here. He's cleansed us with the blood of Jesus. And in his fullness, the glory of God is in our midst. That is what is most true about me. Also, I am full of sin and brokenness. Because Jesus lived a life of obedience, service, and suffering. He obeyed all of God's commands, and he did so with zeal and delight. It was his joy to do the will of the Father. And in a perfect man in whom there was no sin, God rewarded him with glory. And in glory, Jesus now sits forever and ever. He sits at victory at the right hand of God, has all authority in heaven and on earth, is governing the nations and your life. And he did not do that alone. He did that as our substitute in our place. He entered into the reward of glory in our place so that he could share that glory freely with the people he loves who would be hopeless and helpless without him. And you see where Jesus is, his people are there too. That's the principle of union with Christ. What's true about Jesus is now true about us in part, not yet in full. This is such a profound reality, such a mysterious reality. Mysterious, not less true. This is what is most true. Colossians chapter 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. The things that are where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your things, your mind there on things that are above, not on things that are earth. Why? For Christ has died. Okay. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You share his glory. That's not the end of the story. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Think of it this way. When Jesus comes back and the trumpet sounds and he judges the nations, all that's going to happen is what's most true about you is going to be revealed. And what's least true about you in Christ, your brokenness, your sin, your despair, your suffering, those things are going to get fall away. But it's what's most true about you right now is just going to be revealed. 
And as a result, thirdly, God will carry his people to the end. Jesus is not going to lose those who are seated with him in glory. Listen how Jesus ties all this together in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And you see what Peter does here is he strings together a list of verbs at the end of verse 10. And God is the subject of all these verbs. He is the one who is acting. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself confirm, will himself, sorry, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's redundant for a purpose. They overlap. These things all say the same thing from a different angle. He will restore the God of all grace who has given you the glory of Jesus, you've entered into that, will himself restore you. Why? Because life is full of loss. Some of us experience loss by circumstances. We've lost comfort. We've lost physical abilities. We've lost community right now. You may be losing a loved one. You may have lost a job. But for every follower of Jesus, we are called to embrace loss as the way of life now. A ministry of service and suffering. That was Jesus. It was a path he sent for us. And he said, follow me and embrace loss. When he says to his disciples, he says this. This is the night before the cross. He says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up my cross, and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life, is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And if we're going to follow Jesus, come after him, enter into our walk with him, we're going to follow the pattern that Peter's been pressing into. Suffer now, glory later. But the experience of loss is, again, just for a little while because the God of all grace at the end of that story will restore more than we have lost. Did you catch what we did last week and this week with our Old Testament reading? Last week we we heard the story of Job's loss. This week we heard the story of his resurrection and entering into glory. God restored so much more than he lost. And you see what's happening in Job is God saying, this is what I'm doing in the world. Loss isn't the end. I'm going to restore everything that you've lost. And so that then Jesus can say this, "Truly truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... Think union with Christ here. It's true about me. It's true about Jesus in part, but in full. You who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging judging the tribes of Israel. And then, then what will happen is I just lost my notes. Then what will happen is this. 
Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And to live in light of that means this, that whatever we have in this world, whatever freedoms, whatever resources, whatever experiences, we're always stewarding them for our loss and for others' gain. For the sake of others, so that we force, we're forcing ourselves into loss, knowing that God will restore. God, though of all grace, will also confirm. It's a difficult word to translate because Peter is the only one who uses this word in the New Testament. And confirm doesn't kind of carry the same weight in our culture as what Peter's getting at. Confirm, we usually think that just means rubber stamp. In this case, to understand what Peter's saying, the antonym is helpful, the opposite. Because the opposite of the word that's translated for confirm is actually sick and weak. So you might think of it this way, that, that God is strengthening the sick and weak by confirming the promises of Jesus to us. Jesus, in all of his ministry, was just drawn to the sick and weak. They were, like, they were like a moth to light to him. He just couldn't help them. No matter what was going on, if there was someone in the crowd who was weak and hopeless, Jesus was like, they've got my attention. He didn't just say to the lame man either. He never leaves them there. He doesn't say to the main man, I'm sorry you're lame. That must be so hard. He says to the lame man, get up and walk. But he only does it after healing him. Jesus confirms the sick and the weak so that they might walk with him. And you've had this experience where you've come to the end of yourself, the end of your strength, the end of your insights. You've thought, I can't go on. And then Jesus, at just the right time, brings a renewed sense of his presence and his power through his word into your life. And it always happens for me, particularly in worship. It should happen for most of us in worship go through this process of renewal where God's confirming us. And you see what Peter is saying is what God had promised in Ezekiel 34. He's the great shepherd. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them all in justice. God of all grace will restore. He will confirm. He will also strengthen And we've got to remember that the Savior who was rewarded the place of power and authority is also, as Mark mentioned today, a sympathetic Savior who reigns with power. He walked through all the things that we're going through. He knows the weakness that we all experience because he experienced himself. But a sympathetic person who has no power is of no use to us. Our sympathetic great high priest sits at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast onto our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And because he was without sin, he knows what we need to get through without sin. He can strengthen us 
in particular ways. That puts him in a unique position to strengthen his people. He knows the suffering of this present age. He knows rejection. He knows loneliness. He knows sorrow. He knows betrayal. He knows suffering. He knows physical ailment. He knows what it's like to face a trial that's bigger than you, that you cannot handle on your own. And he knows how to bring the power of God at just the right time so that we will endure to the end. And he will establish. The God of all grace will establish you. This is the language of, of rooting, of foundation. Think of a mobile home sitting on, a, on just cinder blocks and a hurricane blows through. It's not established. It's just going to blow off. But a building whose foundation is sunk into the bedrock can be built into a massive structure that can stand any hurricane and any earthquake. Nothing can rattle it, shake it, or destroy it. And Jesus is the bedrock. And we are tied down to Jesus, united to him by the bond of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus holds us, grounds us, and as we'll sing in just a second, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering and the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I'm going to hold fast to the anchor. I shall never be removed. And we can sing that with confidence because God the Holy Spirit is what's tethered us to the anchor of Jesus. And we are established. You see, this is the story to hold on to when you think, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Look up. I'm not going to make it. But Jesus always wins. He wins the victory to the people. And so hear Peter's last words of this section. To him, to him, the God of all grace, to him be the dominion, the victory, the final exalted victory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, hold us fast so that we might not be moved. Confirm your promises to us that we might be willing to lose and experience loss for your sake. And now as we come to your table, do this again. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. In Christ Jesus, in him crucified, so that all the lesser stories would fade in their significance in our hearts. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.